0: Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello, Phil. Hello, Peter. Marvellous. Marvellous. Now, this is going to be our first podcast talking about the Hellraiser comics that were produced by Epic Comics in the late 80s and early 90s. So the first ones were published in 1989, so that would have been just after Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2, but before Hellraiser 3... So those were the only two films that were out in the public eye, and they were done very well, so they decided to do a comic series. And Clive Barker was involved. I think he acted as sort of the artistic chap who you went to to check you weren't messing around with his mythology. But he was certainly involved in some respect, and it's known as Clive Barker's Hellraiser comic. So these comics were released as individual editions, but they've been collected together into books, and today we're going to talk about book one and book two. So, let's begin. We're going to begin with book one, which makes sense, because it's the first one. Mm, Clever. Book one has four stories in it, and the four stories in book one are The Canons of Pain, Dead Man's Hand, The Warm Red, and Dance of the Fetus. Mm. So, let's go have a chat about them, Phil. Yeah. It's important to say, I think, that we, um, myself and Peter, read some of these comics in the past. Yeah, I've, really? I have read some of them a few years ago, yeah. Yeah, I read a couple of issues here and there, but um, yeah, many of these stories I'm reading for the first time, just because I like Hellraiser, mm. and um, so it's quite a new experience getting into these. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah. Yeah, we're both quite big comic fans, but we haven't read all of these Hellraiser comics, so we're going to go through them now, specifically for the podcast, really, and to tell you chaps about it. So, the first one is called The Canons of Pain. Now, this one's really interesting. Right at the beginning, we're back into the Crusades. So we're back into the Dark Ages of England's history. So immediately, you know, there's not going to be any pinhead or anything modern from the films. And this is just immediately brilliant, I think, because it says, you know, this has been around for ages and ages, especially this is only after the first two films. So there's been no sort of backstory yet. Yeah, I think this is a really great story. The ideas behind it are brilliant. And I think it's a natural thing. It's what we've talked about before, that well, if you think the first two films came out, creative people, if they're then given a chance to work in the Hellraiser world, will want to flesh out that mythology. Mm. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> and um, you know, your mind would think, yeah, you know, it'd be great if the box existed way back then in the Crusades and, and mm. what happened with it. And that's what happens here. We've got a soldier who's killed lots of people As part of the Crusades, there's been a big old war. We won't go into the details of the history of the Crusades now, but basically he's been involved and there have been lots of death on both sides. And he comes across this box and it implies that, that he's been fighting for a specific thing and he's finally got there and he goes into this little hut and he discovers this box and he thinks this must be what I've been fighting for, but he doesn't understand what it is straight away. Yeah, he's been waging this holy war, Mm. you know, and he's there to find a specific relic, you know, something to do with uh, God, presumably. And he gets this box. So the chap gets the box and he comes back to his wife and he's a bit of an emotional wreck. It's then sort of a year and seven months later and he won't sleep with her. He's just completely distraught. She's cross about that, isn't she? She is. She wants some action. (laughs) She wants some action. And uh, yeah, he's completely distraught. Because he thinks, you know, why did I go through all this for this box that means nothing? It's yeah. not mentioned in the scriptures. It's just a worthless box. So then his wife and the monk, the priest, they hatch a plan and they do lots of research, find out what the box is. And they discover through their research that the box, what it is exactly. It's a portal sort of to hell and to the, well, to the devil, they think. Well, they, yeah, they think yeah. it's all, yeah, because it's all very religious. And so she decides that she's going to open the box for him. Yeah, she thinks his faith... Well, his faith has been lost. Mm. And so she's like, I'm going to prove to you that there is a hell. Yeah. Clever. She's very proactive, isn't she? And then she does end up opening it. And then this awful Cenobite turns up. I say awful in a good way, as in he's disgusting. And he's brilliant. I love this guy. It's amazing, <laughs> yeah, the look of this guy. The top of his head sort of been ripped off and then removed and sort of tacked back on. And his lips, bottom lips being ripped downwards and held in place by a spike that's connected to his nipple. on one of his seemingly four breasts. Yeah. he's (laughs) He's got these four man boobs. And he's this big, fat, weird creature, but with normal sized arms. And it's just, it's wonderful to look at. It's a really good design. But he's also got a kind of chatter beast with him, hasn't he? Yeah. This little dog type character. Yeah, straight away, he's got this ferocious creature that jumps up on the table. Could that have been an influence to the Chatterbeast in the fourth film? Who knows? Mm. But the dog's great. The dog's much better than (laughs) Chatterbeast ended up in Bloodline, but there you go. Mm. But he turns up and he basically says he wants to take a soul to hell. And at that point, the the husband, the soldier, comes back in with his sword drawn to protect his wife. And the Cenobite decides to take him and so takes him to hell. Yeah, and the amazing thing about this is when he skewers him, it's not hooks and chains, it's mm. swords. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously this was uh, back in the Dark Ages, so all these swords come from nowhere and pierce him, which I think is it's such brilliant. a cool idea. It's brilliant, and so it's really well drawn as well. It is. And we should say at this point, actually, the artwork. Oh, yeah, the artwork differs amazing. very, very strongly from story to story. This one is particularly good. It, it looks painted, and it's, yeah, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it's really good. It's really, really, really clear and beautiful colours. So he gets smashed up with swords (laughs) and then he gets taken away. And the great thing about when he gets taken to hell is at the exact moment that the Cenobite says, right, I've got him, I'm off now, the priest says, you know, vanquish thee back to hell in the name of the Lord. And so the priest thinks that he got rid of the Cenobite Mm. using the Lord's name. Yeah. So then the priest and the wife start this kind of holy war of their own, trying to get rid of all agents of hell on Earth by sort of exercising women they think are witches, they burn people at the stake. There's a little image of her drowning a baby, which is a bit much. Mm, The mark of the devil on it. Oh, yes. Mm. Well, of course, obviously it needs to be drowned. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems that she's pregnant as well. And then eventually, after they've done all this stuff and they've been trying to get rid of hell on Earth, they decide to open the box once and for all and... You know, kill the devil as they think he is. So they open it, and then this guy turns up again. And that's great because he thinks it's really amusing that they keep thinking he's the devil. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, "Well, I'm I'm not, but thanks very much." And um, (laughs) he, you know, when they open the box a second time, it's so great that he says, "Oh, so you wish to play again? Which one wants to come with me this time?" And Mm -hmm. he's just like, "I'm doing my thing, and you guys, (laughs) I don't know what you're up to." And there's a wonderful bit where he skewers the priest onto a sort of a, a cross-type thing, and it's that's great. He skewers him upside down. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's great what he's saying here about, um, look, if there was a god, he wouldn't be interested in you. If he's a huge, powerful god, <laughs> yeah. you're nothing to him. The only thing that counts is suffering and pain, you mm-hmm. know, and that's all amazing, brilliant. And then who turns up but the husband... As a sort of cenobite or just a big bloody mess. And then they take the wife down to hell. But they leave behind the baby, her baby. Yeah, I think it's sort of implied that basically the husband comes along, the sort of zombie husband, (laughs) and uses his sword to cut the baby out of his wife. Yeah, it's not a shame, but it's sort of... I think that's what they're going for, yeah. Okay. And that's what I take from okay. it. Okay. I don't know. Did <laughs> you not get that from it? Um, I didn't. But but that's cool. Well, that's fine. I mean, that's what comics are all about. Some of them are ambiguous, and you you know you take oh, your own. Maybe there's something really wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know that. Right. Okay. Well, that's what I thought happened okay, anyway. Okay. Fine. Um. And yeah. So they are off to hell to be tortured forever. Yeah. And that's the end. So that's and the, the baby that's been left behind. They say this baby's gonna walk the dark path. So he's got some trouble ahead of him as mm. well. And who knows what happened to him. Maybe we'll find out later. Maybe we won't. Well. And that's great. So uh, to start off with this one, it's brilliant. I mean, this one's a really good story. It's talking about religion. It's talking about... It's kind of a bit of a exploration of what people did back in those days in the name of God. But it's also got these horrific horror images in it. Yeah, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. Um, well done. Well done. The... Um, The stuff where, you know, the, um, the woman and the priest think they're doing God's work and they're, and they're torturing people and they're drowning babies and stuff like that. And they're so blissfully, you know, like, we're, we're doing what God wants. We're doing what God wants. And, um, it's just great that this Cenobite is just completely above all this. He's, he has no interest in all of this and he just thinks they're pathetic and he's quite amused by them, Mm. you know? Um, and yeah, I just think it's such a fantastic idea that all these people have died to get this box mm. and what you get out of it is this huge, big, fat monstrosity who just <laughs> wants to take you to hell. And... I like him. I'd like to see him in a film. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. And it's a great design because it, it gives you that feel of the Dark Ages. Yeah. You know, you can see the design of this character versus the design of the Cenobites now. It's almost like, you know, hell mm. obviously updates as mm-hmm. as everything does. You mm. know, so the costumes, the ways of them doing things change yeah and um, yeah it's speaking of the odd. box it's really interesting if you take these stories as canon which a lot of people do actually it shows that there were boxes before Le Marchant made his one mm. in the 1700s mm. so there have been boxes as portals to hell for centuries it says here and that's an interesting idea as well I like that idea mm, I, I like do as well I kind of want that to be the way it is but I yes guess. <laughs> well let's go with that then yeah and, and as well, the design of the box in this story is, is different, isn't it, to the film? It's it's a lot more kind of, I don't know, rustic or rough looking. Yeah, it the is. The designs yeah. on it are not so intricate. No. Which makes sense. Mm. It's good. Very good. So let's move on to the next one, which is called Dead Man's Hand. This one is another one set in the past. This one's set in the Old West. It's a Western, and it's only a little short one. And I think this one's really interesting as well. I think it's great. Yeah. And uh, it's basically this stranger, the tall dark stranger, rides into town and he's kind of like an an agent of the box. He's got a box with him and he plays a game of cards with this local gambler who's got a bit of reputation. He puts the box on the table and basically says we're playing for this and the best thing is at at the end the guy he's playing against, this local guy called Jed, he wins the hand and so as his reward the stranger decides not to give him the box and he takes it away and he leaves. Yeah, which is the great twist. Yeah, and it's brilliant. I mean, you don't see it coming. You think, oh, he's going to give him the box and then he's going to... But he doesn't. And it's great. I mean, it's real. It's like, oh, well done. You've won, actually. So uh, you won't get sent to hell. He doesn't say that. He just says, he says, I would give you the most valuable thing on earth, so I will, by taking this box away with me. And then he just leaves. Yeah. And everyone is pretty freaked out by him. But this guy Jed sort of breathes a bit of a sigh of relief and he realises he's come close to something awful. Well, he says the whole town turned out for church that Sunday. (laughs) And old Jed, well, he was singing with the loudest of them. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. I mean, it's a lovely little story. It is brilliant. It is brilliant. And it brings in a a concept which flows through all of these stories, which we'll talk about again, I think, um, of hell being a very orderly place, uh, being about order, which you wouldn't quite... yeah. Perceive. There are there are rules definitely um, because the, the the stranger who comes to town you know the Jed says something like oh you wouldn't be cheating on me and the guy says no cheating is so disorderly <laughs> you know there's, there are rules they're all bound by these different rules um, but it's a brilliant character I love the idea of this guy the man in black who turns up and yeah. you know he's one of the original engineers isn't he he's one of the original yeah. people who push the puzzles around the world and give them to people that is what it's definitely saying here it's say, he's not a Cenobite at all he's one of these. Yeah, engineers, agents of the box who passes it on and makes people open them. Mm. And it's a really lovely twist that, you know, there are these rules and that for his own amusement, he wants to play this game of cards Yeah, to see whether or not he's going to send this guy to hell. Fantastic. A very different style of artwork in this one yeah, as well. The, the, the first one, the, the Cannons of Pain, is very sort of realistically drawn and sort of painted. And this one is much more... Comic booky, really, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, the Canons of Pain looks um, kind of like something you'd see on like a tapestry or something Mm. like that, doesn't Mm. it? It's really well done in that way, and this one um, is more your traditional comic book, but still really lots of character and um, yeah, detailed, really detailed drawing. Yeah, it's a really good. I could see this being made into a into a a short film it would be a great little short film and it wouldn't take much you just need one set and some western costumes Mm. (laughs) (laughs) that's That's it it. (laughs) Hellraiser podcast at hotmail.co.uk we have eternity to know your feedback great so moving on to the third one the warm red this one let's talk about the, the style of the artwork first because again it's very different yeah, the warm red artwork, um, I think, is very clean and clear mm. and precise. The colours, to me, seem a little washed out, you know. It's, it's not very, yeah. really vibrant. Um, but everything's really detailed and sharp. A bit like, for any comic fans, a bit like Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. It's got that sort of feel to it. It's very good. And this story, this one reminds me of the first film in certain aspects of it. Mm. Because it's got a main character who's a lady who's getting her own way using nefarious means, especially sex. So she reminds me of Julia straight away. Uh-huh. So the basic idea is she works for a company that's trying to set up this... It says park. I guess some kind of theme park. It says bigger than Orlando, that sort of thing. Hotels, restaurants. But there's this one property they can't get rid of, and it's this old farmhouse. So she's given some money to go and find this house and buy it so they can then get rid of it and build their park. Yeah. And when she gets there, she discovers there's this... There's this kind of big old farmhand guy who's got special needs, he's a bit slow, and she finds this puzzle box on the mantelpiece. Mm, yeah, really he lives evil. in this really dilapidated farmhouse. Yeah. And um yeah, he, he's a bit weird. He the their first conversation, she's really manipulating him and sort of giving oh, it all this kind of like, Oh, hey Brian, well <laughs> nice to see you. And um he's having fantasies or interspersed with their conversation. You're seeing her Tied up mm. and being um, cut and she's naked and stuff like that. And then she gets naked. <laughs> she takes off her clothes and she's going to try and basically hump the house out of him. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. He gives her some lemonade and uh, she's uh, going to use her feminine wiles to uh, <laughs> get him to give up the house. And um, Another little fantasy panel where he's cutting her open with a scalpel. Mm. And um, he's really doesn't want her to stay. No, no. He keeps saying, you've got to go. Mother wouldn't, you know. Yeah, mother like wouldn't it. approve. And um, <laughs> yeah, you should leave. And she's really trying to get him. And then she collapses. Yeah, he's, he's drugged her. He put something in a lemonade and she collapses and wakes up tied to the bed. And he's holding this puzzle box. Yeah, and this is great because they're in the upstairs in the house and the bed that she's tied to is covered in old, dry blood, Yeah, which yeah. is brilliant. So it's obvious that he's done this before. Yeah, and um, he's completely covered in scars on his chest. Oh yeah, and it implies that his mum, I guess it's his mum, mm-hmm. used to cut him with a razor. Yeah, that's She used weird. to make him lie down on the bed and for some reason she'd cut him with a razor, I guess, to punish him. So he's obviously... I mean, you know, there's a sympathy for this character here because he's obviously, you know, mad. He obviously had a horrible childhood... Yeah, and he's damaged. He abused. Yeah. And now he lives in this farmhouse on his own and occasionally people come there mm-hmm. and he basically yeah. um, tortures them. But yeah. he's got the box... Mm-hmm. And he opens the box and then a Cenobite arrives... Who we will see more of in later comics. This is a Cenobite, brand new for these comics, not in the films. He's called Face, and he's really interesting design. I think he's sort of like a skinned head, but he's wearing a skin mask that's been stapled to the front of his head. Mm. And I really like that the fact that there's actual staples. He's actually used a stapler to attach this mask to his face. Yeah, it's, that's it, great. It is good. And here's a brilliant bit that you um, actually see face in hell torturing someone else. Oh, yeah. that's, and, v- that's great. And this is fantastic because you can hear him. I mean, he's you, basically you're listening to his inner monologue and he's torturing this guy and he's like, "Ah, oh, I can feel the call. The call of the box, yeah, and that's fantastic because then a... he's sort of like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna finish this first, yeah. and then, then I'll go and see what that's all about. <laughs> I'll finish up with you to so this poor guy as <laughs> he sticks like a ice pick through his eye, um, <laughs> and um, yeah. But that's a brilliant part of you know the whole Cenobite myth that we haven't really seen. This is exactly what the comics, you know, are best at doing things that the film can't do. You can really delve into hell, what goes on, and what goes behind the scenes, and just things that you couldn't really do in a film because the but the budget would be huge you know you're needing this whole hell set just for one little moment but you can do it in a comic easily and it's great really good imagination yeah and you you see him actually dissolve and there's a great little passage there again about the order of things the chaos of cellular agitation Mm. uh, the cacophony of life is replaced with the pure mathematical orbits of electrons the harmony of crystal and you know all this kind of stuff is yeah you know it's it's really interesting thing about hell this order out of chaos I think the chaos of flesh is what they're, yeah. what they're kind of fighting against in a weird way. Yeah, and exploring. So he turns up at the farmhouse, Face. Yeah. And that's great, because he turns up and Brian says, Hello, Face. And he says, <laughs> Brian. <laughs> and then comes the moment that really reminds me of the first film, not so much to do with Julia, but to do with Kirsty, Because the woman on the bed, who's been lying down, tied to the bed, she's a very intelligent woman, and she quickly realises that this guy kills people and gives them to face. And so she strikes a deal with him. And she calls him by his name. She says, hey, face, I'll, I'll make you a deal. This is great, isn't it? Yeah. She's ruthless. She is. She's in a really bad situation here. And she instantly, a guy with no face mm. has just appeared. And she instantly sizes up the situation and says, listen, I'll make you a deal. Yeah. And her deal is to, first of all, get rid of this farmhand chap. And then also she says, if you let me go, then I will make this park and there'll be thousands of people coming here and, you know, you can have them. Which is great. She's just like, look, this guy's dead weight. Yeah. He's, he's sitting here on his own. Get rid of him. Uh, and Face actually, when he turns up, he says, I, I can see what you're doing from the other side. Mm. And you've had opportunities and you've let them go. So... And she's like, I could do it. I could get you people. Yeah. I can bring you thousands of people. And then so Face, as a test for her... He reverses the roles and the guy ends up being tied to the bed and she has to kill him. Yeah, and uh, that's her little audition. Yeah, it's it's an audition. And it's left with... It's left ambiguously, yeah, uh, but I think it's quite clear that she's about to do it. She's a ruthless, heartless bitch. (laughs) She's going to do it. She's She's going to do it. But hell, what, what, what else would you do in that situation? Well, exactly. I mean, you know... But this is great because this is another one that really shows you the kind of devil's bargain that you can end up in. Mm. It's really interesting to me, um, the whole thing of, I mean, you've got the Cenobites. That's fine, they're otherworldly. But these human agents of the Cenobites, the people who push the puzzles around and the people who do things like this, is a really interesting concept to me. Because now, to get out of this situation where she was going to be killed, she's basically sold her soul. Yeah, to face. like she's gonna to have to kill other people forever for him. Yeah, and that's exactly what the first film was all about: bargaining and and, and making you know, deals with people. Look how quickly he turned on poor Brian. <laughs> poor well, they do. Brian. That's yeah. the thing, you know. How it, it amazes me that people, uh, you you know, you, that's what's so brilliant about it that you'll make this deal with something and you know that it's going to turn on you hmm. at the slightest whim. Yeah, but hey, great this one's, story. Yeah, really good as well. Great Excellent story stuff. So let's move on to the last one of this book, of book one, The Dance of the Fetus. Mm. This one's another quite short one. It's a very interesting story. And this story is all about a lonely woman. Well, it seems she's lonely. She lives in this crappy little apartment and she's a bit depressed. And it implies that she's been trying to find a way to get into hell. Yeah, I mean, the whole vibe of it is just miserable. It's raining. She goes to the butcher. She buys some yeah. meat. She comes home. It's very depressing. It's dark. all horrible. Um, and then she sees this weird monster crawl down the stairs mm-hmm. in front of her. And then it, I, I think it's kind of implying that she's she wishes it was the monster, but it's not quite yet. And she's waiting for this monster to turn up, and she keeps imagining she sees it. Yeah, it's a little bit ambiguous, this bit, but yeah. What it says that later on, though, doesn't it? That she's, been, she's you know, played this scene over in her head lots of different times. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she says, how much longer must I wait? You know. Mm. So, but I think, I think the gist of this bit is that she thinks this creature's coming down the stairs, but it's actually just a, another bloke who lives in the apartment. That's yeah, what I got I think, I think Something like that. So, yeah, I think that's what it's implying. Mm-hmm. But then she gets into her apartment, and there is a creature, sort of little hunched dwarf-type creature from hell, sitting in the kitchen waiting for her. Yep. And um, he's got like a sort of little overalls on. Yeah. And sort of uh, sunglasses type thing. I don't know. So this guy's great. I think he, he's, he's known as Mr. Soul. I think that's his name. And he's brilliant. He's again got his lip pulled apart. A bit like Chatterer. And he's a little kind of imp with a huge big torso and tiny little legs. And he says it's finally time for you to join us. Yeah, it's great. I mean like... She says like she's been waiting for ages, and, and when he turns up, he's like, oh, sorry, I've been backed up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like he's got <laughs> loads busy. of sorry, work I was, on. I meant to be here early, but I had a lot, of, a lot of work to do. And then he climbs into her mouth and goes inside her body, and it so implies that he sort of shrinks in size, and he's inside her body sort of playing around, basically, with her, isn't he? It's brilliant, this bit. Yeah, he's like having a great time. He's like like a a kid in a playground, (laughs) pulling all the nerves and messing about with all the flesh inside her. And I think, well, what I got from this is that he kind of is puppeting her. Like he's 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 kind of yeah. Well, she then she takes her clothes off, gets into a bath, she runs a bath, and she's gonna she gets a razor and she's gonna kill herself in the bath. Mm. And so, yeah, it could be implying that he's making her do all these things inside. Oh, maybe not. Maybe you know, just his presence. I like home, that so. idea, though. That's a really nice idea that he's sort of puppeteering her from inside. It's great. Mm. And then, but then he discovers inside her body this little fetus, little yeah. embryo. And he's like, "What? What's this?" <laughs> and then they have the most amazing conversation. Him and this fetus. He basically says that they've got rules and regulations for hell, and you know, I can't just take anyone there. You have to want to go. And the fetus is like, "Go where?" And he says, to hell. And the kid says, what's hell? And so the guy, Mr. Soul, then is like, okay, I can't take you, sorry. And this is brilliant because it's it's very much like the, he's a, a different, whole new soul, this little embryo. Hmm. And because of that, he refuses to take the kid to hell. Yeah, well, he says we're not that cruel. Yeah. Which is great. And it's just fantastic that he <laughs> sort of, I love it, where he's sort of like, oh, we can't just take anyone. You have to want to go. Do you want to go? And he's kind of yeah. like and these kids yeah. just like, I don't know anything. What the hell are like, you oh, on about? Man, he's like, okay. Oh, fine. This is a real problem for my job here. And so <laughs> then if you haven't read this, you might be thinking, So Mr. Soul decides to leave. But no, what <laughs> he does, he takes the embryo, the fetus, and he places it on the floor of the bathroom. <laughs> and gets back inside her mouth and then takes her to hell and she kills herself. Yeah. And the very end sort of sees the fetus walking along in the house, looking up to the sky, seeing some stars floating up into the sky and becoming a star. Which I wasn't too sure about when I first read it, but, I mean, after speaking to you, I think it's quite clear that... I think it's implying the kid dies, basically. He kills the fetus and then he goes to heaven instead. Yeah, that's what I took from it. Yeah, You know, that he kind of floats off up to heaven. Um, So there we go. Or to somewhere else. It doesn't have to be heaven. (laughs) Whatever. Um, But, yeah... um, it's a really, really lovely little story, this one. When I first read it, I kind of thought, hmm. And I didn't um, necessarily like the art style in it. No, I didn't when I first read it. It's chaotic. quite abstract. Yeah, and chaotic is a good word. Mm, it's very angular and, and kind yeah. of crazy. But um grows on you, this one. Yeah, yeah the more I read it, the more I really like it. And now when I look at it, I see so much detail in each panel. And um, it's really cool, actually. Really lovely little story. And it's nothing to do with the the box. No. But it still is in that realm of Hellraiser and the Cenobites. So I think that wraps up book one. I just want to say that I love book one. I think every story in it is really good. And if you and it's a perfect place to start. If you haven't read any of these comics, then definitely go out and get book one and, it, and it, you'll really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, you'll really love it. And it's a great um, little companion piece to the films and it expands on the whole mythos and mythology of Hellraiser. Yeah. It's brilliant. Even if you don't get the original epic releases, Boom Studios, who are doing a new comic at the moment which is excellent we'll do that on another podcast they are re-releasing some of these stories in sort of a masterworks package and that's worth getting as well because it you know they're the ones that they're choosing to release individually as it were mm. and you can also get individual stories as well um digitally oh yeah here because yeah. i bought a couple on my phone yeah, yeah. And, but they kind of seem to be a bit random. iPhones and, and iPads and things. Android, yeah, get, get those and have a look and, yeah, just just have a look at them, because they're quite cheap, to get them individually. So if you find one that we've talked about and you think it's interesting, have a look at it, it's really good. They're definitely worth having a look. This is Ashley Lawrence, you're listening to the Hellraiser podcast. So book two has five different stories in it. They're called The Vault, Diver's Hands, Writer's Lament, The Threshold and The Pleasures of Deception. So we'll begin with The Vault. Mm. Right, so the first one is called The Vault. It's set in it says here, a country in South America, so an unspecific country where there's sort of a revolution going on. Mm. And there's a revolutionary leader who's imprisoned, and it's, the story's kind of about him and the prison warden. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that there was this other guy who opened a puzzle box in his cell and disappeared, and they think he escaped it almost like he disappeared but Mm. he actually did obviously he opened the box and got sent to hell so the warden decides that you know if this guy did escape then he used this box somehow this box has something to do with it so he tries to make the revolutionary leader who's in prison there open the box yeah he becomes over the course of the story just obsessed with the box yeah yeah. just obsessed with one of these chenard moments yeah yeah and then basically, when the revolutionary leader can't open the box, the warden gets very angry with him and beats him to death with the box. Mm. Which is kind of, you know, reminiscent of something that happens in Hellraiser Revelations. <laughs> just, <laughs> just putting that out there. Um, but then while he's beating him to death, he accidentally solves it mm. and opens it. Mm. And a Cenobite turns up to take him to hell, the prison warden. Yeah, and again, in this story, I think there's a lot of um, references to structure, yeah, restructuring and discipline and, you know, the kind of bringing order out of chaos, the chaos of the revolution. Mm-hmm. He wants to bring order. And when the Cenobite turns up, the Cenobite basically quotes his own lines back to him and saying like, well, there's going to be some restructuring. You just lack discipline. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah which yeah. is obviously what they're going to do to him in hell. I mean, we've simplified it a little. Um, I'm not actually a huge fan of this story, I've got to say. I think it's really interesting. I think it's it's what the story trying to tell is a very interesting one, but personally, it's it's not one that I find engaging, really. Yeah, I think I'd agree. I think in a way, I guess it's almost too successful because the artwork, you know, just sort of showing this hot, humid, horrible <laughs> yeah, prison, un- unpleasant. unpleasantness. It it kind of yeah, it it kind of makes me feel really like uncomfortable reading it. And um, the story's a little, you know, convoluted, and even though it's a very simple story, but yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really vibe with this one as much as some of the others. It's worth reading. I just don't really think it's got sort of re-readable. It's definitely a good idea. Oh um, yeah, and, it's, yeah, and it's, yeah. It, is, it is well done. But it, yeah, there's just something about it that just didn't really make me okay, super excited. Fine, you know, each yeah. to their own. Mm. I'm sure lots of people out there really love it. So good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so let's move on to the second one, which is called Diver's Hands, which mm. is about a guy who's got a disease. It's it's sort of leprosy, really, isn't it? They call it Hansen's disease. Mm. But this chap is very unwell, and uh, basically his fingers are all stubby. And we meet him with this box, and he can't. He, he's trying to open the box when we first meet him, but he can't open it because his fingers are deformed. Well, he hasn't sort of got any, has he? There's no, that's gone. quite deformed, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he um, he's at this centre getting medication, but he's on the way out, basically. He looks yeah. really sick. He um, looks like a, like a skeleton, doesn't he, really? His mm. head's just like a skull. Yeah. And um, he sort of catches the eye of this nurse who's got to look after him. And over the course of the story, she gets more and more obsessed with him. And she actually, at one point, is having sex with her boyfriend and then kind of imagines him. Yeah, yeah. Which is um, really strange. Um, At this point, I just want to mention the artwork for this one is really interesting. It's kind of sort of realistic, with the sort of shading and the and the way faces are drawn, but it's all sort of done in pastels and it's. Yeah, it kind of quite looks like ethereal, really watercoloury somehow, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. I quite like it. I think I wouldn't want everyone to look like this, but I, I quite like it for this one. Yeah, no, it's really good. It gives it a real um, distinctive style. This mm. story. Mm. Um, so yeah, this dreamlike quality. Um, basically, the the key point here is um, people were saying he could have stopped this illness. He could have got treatment. Yeah. But he didn't. He actually went off and found the box. Again, another person becomes obsessed with the idea of opening this box and the puzzle. Because mm, he thinks, well, if I can open the box, then the Cenobites can stop me dying of this disease. Yeah. So then he basically asks the nurse to help him open the box because he's got no fingers. He wants her to manipulate the box and open it for him. Mm. Which uh, she does. She agrees, yeah. And then they have this scene where they go sort of to a dark room and uh, he gets there to open the box, which is quite a cool idea. I like the idea of someone actually telling you what to do. It's like almost he knows how to open it and he's like over her shoulder going, turn it, twist it, do this, do that, (laughs) which is cool. But then, you know... They arrive. Yeah, some Cenobites turn up. And these aren't any ones we've met before. The main one is kind of a weird sort of imp, goblin, slash Martian type thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting design. It's got a big kind of bulbous head and um, no lips, really. Um He's kind of a little reminiscent of the... The reason I said Martian was like the Martians in Mars Attacks. <laughs> it's a little bit like them. Yeah. Yeah, they're all kind of weird looking. Yeah, but cenobites. the others are really odd as well. They're, I mean, very abstract and sort of the things that you might not be able to do in film because people might you know laugh at it yeah yeah they look very unusual and they're kind of wearing like leather and spikes and thongs and stuff like that Hmm. um but yeah they turn up and they grab hold of the girl straight away and um basically reveal that it's all been a trick yeah here's your twist for this one uh vincent the guy uh is bringing people to them yeah in order that one day they will make him a Cenobite. I know. Yeah. And that's great, because he's this kind of, you know, feeble, physically feeble character, but, you know, he's, he's manipulative, and he wants the power that they can bring him by turning him into a Cenobite. So, you know, that makes him... he's like a, He turns into a proper villain all of a sudden, rather than just this inquisitive, obsessed chap. Yeah, and it's really graphic what happens. I mean, you know, they, like the lead Cenobite here bites um, the woman Mary's ear off. That uh, Then the lead Cenobite whispers something to her and she throws the box away. Hmm. And he says, where's the, where's the box? And they say, oh, nearby. And a nice little detail here, he says, um, it would be nearby because the Cenobites never lie. Yeah, he says they never lied. At least, well, to him anyway. Mm. But I like that idea and I think I've read that in other things as well. Um, but I mean, they don't lie because why would they lie? I mean, even in the first two films they're very matter-of-fact. No, we want you. Yeah. They they, can't do that. That's it, yeah. That's it, exactly. That's he what ed- I like didn't about them. He not escape us. That's what I like about them. Yeah. It's almost like that they're kind of above all of this. Well, that's this is again the thing. All the humans are the one who are manipulating and they're the tricksters. And the Cenobites are just Sort of, they're doing their job. They kind of um, they get what they want. I mean, the Cenobites do make these deals, and they do trick people in the comics, at least, mm. um, but in a very straightforward manner. And it's it's kind of like, yeah, you, know, you know, you think, oh no, you know, it's the classic devil's bargain, isn't it? Always. Yeah. And these guys, these Cenobites, seem to be taking real pleasure in their work. <laughs> yeah. So the the um, the guy goes and tries to find the box, and he goes through all the different corridors of the institute. And he finds it, picks it up, and then suddenly the Cenobites arrive again. And they say, whoa, this is great. You've opened the box again. What have you got for us? And he's like, I didn't open the box. At which point the lead Cenobite... Yeah, he points to a a plaque on the wall that says the architect of the centre was Le Marchand. Mm, So the entire building is a lament configuration. Nice. Yes. And they're going to take him away... And it says they're going to turn him into some form more useful to them.
1: Yeah. But just after
0: they've said that, you've met... She's turned up again. Mary's turned up again. And she's kind of like a bit of a... Like a human spider sort of thing with loads of arms coming out of her. Yeah, she's um, basically just been turned into this massive spider creature. And she's sort of... Yeah, that's great. And she pounces on him. Yeah. And his final thing is, what beautiful fingers. Because that's what he wanted, isn't it? You know? Yeah. So he's basically not ended up with what he wanted... Technically, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's ambiguous, maybe. Maybe he's kind of going to be happy yeah. in whatever form the Cenobites choose for him. But, um It's yeah. a good, good story, this. It's, it's a really good story. It's a really good story. It's got some very interesting visuals in it, an interesting style, and a good twist. Yeah, it's nice. We like... Speaking of things we like, we really like the next story as well, which is called Writer's Lament, which is... The whole story is just a satire on how... A writer gets his work butchered and changed by producers yeah, and it's it's really full on like, <laughs> yeah I mean, there's blatant. no there's no kind of ambiguity to this one. It's basically saying you have a great idea, someone else comes in and completely screws it <laughs> and the idea in this story is this guy he's in hell, he's kind of a creator, and he he's made this baby like a perfect baby. And he and he takes this baby to who he describes as his editor, who says, "Yeah, I like it, I like it, but we need to make some changes." And rips its eye out first of all. Yeah, this is a great little bit, isn't it? Because he, he's in the waiting room for the editor, and there's all these other people with babies, and he's like, "Well, they've all got babies as well." Yeah. And then he takes them in, and the editor is a real slickster with mm-hmm. like loads of blonde hair and all kind of like you know suit, sharp and all this sort of thing. And he's like, "This baby's a hit." this is going to be great. I'm just going to make a few minor changes. <laughs> and he rips its eye out. <laughs> and, yeah, and then he grabs his arm and says, of course, this will have to go too. And rips the arm off. <laughs> and uh, I like that. And then um, he rips his genitals off. Yeah. And I love this, this sort of reasoning for these things. Like when he pulls the arm off and the writer's going, well, bilateral symmetry was one of my themes. And he's like, yeah. no. And then he sort of rips the genitals off because um, some people might find this thing Distasteful. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says, and it just uh, the, the same picture where he's ripping the baby's genitals off, he's saying, We have to understand if someone took this part out of context, we could be left open to criticism, <laughs> which is great. And then the writer says that, you know, it was good before you messed it up, which yeah. is basically what a lot of writers think about their, you know, their scripts or their stories that are taken away and changed. Mm-hmm. So then he puts it all back again. He says, Okay, well, we can make some compromise here. I'll put everything back, puts the old... Uh, bits back on the baby, mm-hmm. and then rips its heart out, Yeah, because that is one change that can solve all of his problems. Yeah, About yeah. the heart of the piece. And uh, he actually, the writer then actually says, you killed my baby, you asshole. <laughs> Which is, you know, what a lot of people think. I mean, we're not saying that, you know, this is Clive Barker saying this stuff, because it's, it's written by someone else. But some people do think that about the Hellraiser franchise, that, you know, they've killed Clive Barker's baby. And this is not even a subtle metaphor. It's just basically saying, you know, this is what happens. You've killed my baby. Yeah. And the the really horrible bit at the very end is that the guy says, well, we can you can work. We can work together again. And he says, OK, I've got some other ideas. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, but at the end, he says, from now on, I won't put any heart into my baby's in the first place so that he can't rip them out. So basically Jesus. you know you have that whole thing of the writer who becomes disillusioned with working all their ideas getting ruined and therefore mm. their ideas they just start off the idea <laughs> completely neutered yeah. and completely you know homogenized or whatever from the beginning. Um and I think we're both writers yeah. and this really speaks to me this kind of thing it's a real fear yeah. for yeah. a writer isn't it in whatever medium you're working in in films or books that someone else is going to take your idea and to get it made is so difficult, but they're going to wreck it. Yeah. Well, that's happened also with not just writers, but thinking about directors as well. Mm. Like I'm thinking of like Kevin Yeager, who made Bloodline, who you know made this film, put effort into it, and then the studio dicked about with it and he disliked the end product so much he took his name off. This isn't for your eyes. It's for your ears. Right, so on to the next one, which is uh, The Threshold. This one's about virtual reality. It starts off with this guy who's invented this machine that can make you believe whatever the computer tells you is actually really happening. Yeah. Like an extreme virtual reality. Yeah, it's like The Matrix, isn't it? So Yeah, it is, yeah. When you plug into it... Or like Strange Days, that film. Mm. That's a really good film. Yeah, Sorry. You, you, you plug into it and... Um whatever you want to happen or whatever the computer tells you is happening yeah. in your mind is happening but really you're just sitting in a chair but this guy who's invented it as you see him talking about it, he's recording into a, a microphone about what it is and this is what I've done he's got a puzzle box there mm. and when he finishes his recording he says you know this is my thing go and use it he sits back and he picks up the box as if he's about to open it Yeah, so he leaves the um, technology with a company. Who then market it in probably the most obvious way that you would do. The first thing people want is, you know, pleasure. And so they market it as like a sex toy. Mm. Sex with the stars. Celebrity sex. Yeah. Which, you know, is what people would want. If this happens, this kind of technology, this is exactly what is going to happen I mean, it's the biggest industry, isn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) This is definitely what's going to happen with it. Um, so yeah so they've got people in the chairs and they're all um, having sex with uh, yeah, famous and people you can turn on a different setting so either you see the person just sat in a chair just you know calmly as if they're in a coma But if you turn on a different setting, you see them sort of reacting to what's happening in their head. Yeah, that's quite funny. So they're sort of, you know, laughing about this and say, hey, look what we can do. Click. There's a man going, oh. Yeah. But then we go to, so this is a very much a sort of pleasure and pain story, because then we go to another story of this derelict homeless man who was brought in as a guinea pig when they were first trying out this experiment. Yeah, it's like the scientist is showing someone around the facility and Mm. he's like, come down to the basement and meet my good buddy Bob." Um, who's a homeless man who, yeah, he really needed the money. Bob hasn't had a good time. No, because basically when they first started messing about with this machine, it would get confused and it would put things in the wrong place and the sky would be made of jelly or whatever. And so they were (laughs) testing it on people. (laughs) It doesn't say that in the story. They were testing it on people to see, you know, if they could uh, sort it out. Yeah, and Bob, they were supposed to make him surfing. But unfortunately... ...accidentally made him surfing down a mountain that was covered in lava. Yeah, he's surfing down a lava flow. (laughs) Yeah, which isn't ideal. It's not ideal, so he falls off, obviously. And... And they say that he was left in the... The machine was left on all night. Yeah. So he was basically writhing around in lava, in agony, all night long. Yeah, he was writhing in molten lava the whole night because the operator basically left him there by accident. Mm and this is so horrible because this scientist just doesn't see this guy as a real human being at all no he's just like hey I'm going to have some fun watch this he's like what are you doing he's like I'm making him screw a hornet's nest which is just it's hideous so grim this scientist has just basically been experimenting and experimenting on him to try and get the most pain possible and it lists all these different things that he's done yeah to this guy mentally and it's just awful but he's got one experiment he hasn't tried yet that he really wants to, which is kind of like creating a feedback loop of pain. They describe it in a good way. They say it's like an ugly man looking at his face. And each time he sees how ugly he is, he grimaces, which makes him uglier. And then that will make him grimace even more. And it's sort of like reflecting something, making it worse every single time, it goes back and forth it for all eternity. So the pain will Get more and more and more exponentially, and just be the most ridiculous pain anyone could ever feel. Yeah, because this scientist wants to find out what happens beyond pain. What does yeah. it become when that's you cross the, the threshold? Yeah, the name where... of the story comes when he says, Yeah, what does pain become after you cross the threshold? Yeah. And it's nice because he starts it with just a pinprick, isn't it? And yeah. That's, that's the beginning. And that's, it. that's so cool. That's such a cool idea that he yeah. just gives the guy in his head a pinprick. And that then increases and increases and increases. And then we find out what happens when you do that. We find out what the threshold is. It actually opens the portal to hell. And then a Cenobite turns up, who is the guy from the very beginning, the guy who invented this machine and then opened the box and went to hell. And he describes this as his puzzle this was my puzzle. Yeah, I think the kind of the machine itself is almost like a puzzle or something. That's what I took from yeah. it. but I don't know. It's a bit ambiguous that bit, but yeah. Basically, yeah. The, the the scientist has solved the puzzle by creating the perfect pain. Yeah, the most intense pain in, in existence. And uh, the Cenobite who turns up says, "Oh, can I just have a quick go?" And he puts the machine on, and he's like, "Wow, this is great." <laughs> <It's a laughs> yeah. <love>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends with the the horrible scientist man who's doing the experiments being taken down to hell which is what he deserves Phil yeah it frankly. is and he says but it's going to be great for him because he's like they're going to love you in hell I say yeah, this like you yeah. you're going to be great he's there gonna have a great time. so you know that I mean I, what <laughs> I take from that is that he's going to go away and be a Cenobite and he's probably you know he's going to, that's a great job for him yeah because he's yeah. a sick freak <laughs> <laughs> right and so we've just got one more to talk about today and that's the last story in book two which is called The Pleasures of Deception so this one's about an artist who is down on his luck and he feels like he's lost his muse and he's sort of drinking and people are saying you know you need to snap out of this man you need to get back to work and he's saying I can't I don't know what to do Mm. yeah his work's gone stale and nobody wants it anymore and he doesn't want to he needs something new. He needs some new experience, and that's exactly what he gets because this man turns up with the puzzle box and says this can give you sensations and experience, and you can you know use this experience in your work. Mm. And this is quite cool that he he references other people who found the box or yeah. you know bits that he's got from books about the box, which I like. Yeah, this is implied in a few different stories. The fact that there is written evidence, if you look hard enough, to, that describes this box, and people have written about it and talked about it down the generations and this information is there should you wish to find it. Mm. Yeah. If you want to do your research. Which is a really interesting idea. I like that. Yeah. So then the artist gets the box through some kind of nefarious means. It's it's a little bit abstract some parts of this story. Yeah, um, a little ambiguous. And it's it's drawn very abstract as well. It's it's a very sort of abstracty painting style. Yeah, it's really dark and um there sort of seems to be like photographs mixed in and mm. yeah. Um, but yeah, he gets the box. Basically, is the long and short of it, and he and opens the box. He opens it, yeah. And who turns up? Cool. But our good friends from the first two films. We've got Pinhead and the female Cenobite. The first yeah. time that we've seen them in these comics. Yeah, so they're they're here, and uh, they say, "What do you want?" And he's like, "Well, I want, I want to understand. Yeah, I want to know about the flesh. I want to know about experiences." And they say, "We can give you that." Mm. But they don't take him to hell. No, they um, sort of allow him to continue his work. Yeah, and it sort of implies that they encourage him or help him to kill people. And I mean, I, what I took from this was that he's then using the viscera of the people and their blood and their bits and pieces to, to do his artwork. Mm. And he's painting using human people, basically. Mm. Yeah, and so he sort of gets into this mad sort of creative period. Yeah, you know, and, uh, in... yeah, part of the the hell sort of that he's in. I mean, you could argue... I mean, if you're looking at films like Inferno and Hellseeker, then the rest of the film could be, you know, in his personal hell and all that nonsense. Mm. But he does basically go mad. He loses his way, he loses his sanity, and he starts seeing weird things. But then the guy that he got the box from turns up and sort of implies that he stole it and Mm. says, that's where the box is, you know. I won that back. And the Cenobites turn up and dispatch him. Yeah. Yeah, and at this point the artist is sort of going, oh, what have I done? What have I unleashed? And yeah, and he he runs away, runs through town, sort of seeing weird things, hallucinating, and just basically going mad. Yeah, and it kind of wraps up with him saying, look, you know, I need to understand. And they say, look, you can't understand the flesh. You've got to go beyond the flesh. Mm. You've got to be melded at Leviathan's will. Yeah, and then, yeah, it ends with them basically saying they're going to rearrange him. They're going to treat him like a canvas, and they're going. They're going to be the artists and create him in their own in their own way. And then he's he's gone. He's been taken to hell to be messed around with. Mm. So it's a similar. Lots of similar themes and lots of similar ideas from some of the other ones about this kind of rearranging of your body and um, yeah. reordering. And um, yeah, the, yeah. This one's very abstract, as we said, and the the way it's presented, the artwork is is very sort of ambiguous and a lot of the writing is ambiguous you're not really sure what's going on in certain places and personally I'm not a huge fan of that I mean I I do like to know what's happening I'm I'm not saying that you know I need to be spoon-fed everything but sometimes if if there's a story that's deliberately ambiguous and makes you feel a bit stupid like you you should know what's going on but you don't then I'm not a big fan of those sort of stories Mm. and this one has that slight feeling to it I'm not saying it's bad but it's not as enjoyable as the other ones that are telling us a, a strong story. Yeah. This one's kind of more of like an experience piece. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Very it, much. The way that it's drawn and, and the way that it's kind of each page is like you just get feelings from it. You know, it's kind of this really chaotic sort of almost being inside this guy's mind. So it's more of a, yeah, it's more of a, a feeling thing and it's um not, not great feelings because it just kind of <laughs> makes you feel really like what the hell? Yeah. You know, um, but you can see it's a well done piece, you know. You, that the art is good, and it is it is doing something right. But yeah, yeah. I, it, it wasn't one of the ones that jumped out at me that I really loved when I first read it. I was, you no, know, yeah, me neither. But but it is good. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah that's it really isn't it for this one yeah, we we've exactly. both we both kind of had a very ris- visceral reaction to it and uh, it didn't kind of make us go my god this is rubbish but it didn't kind of make us go oh I really really love that like some and of the other ones went, mm, hmm, mm. Hmm. so yeah it'd be <laughs> nice to know what um, some of the folks at home think about yeah. that one because um, I'd really love to read it again and sort of have some other people's opinions to kind of take with me as a bit of yeah, a guide through that yeah great hmm Right, I think we've come to the end of our first podcast about the comics then. Hope you enjoyed it. We're going to go through all of the comics eventually. So let us know what you think of the comics as well. Don't forget you can send all feedback to hellraiserpodcast at Uk, or find our Facebook page or we've got a Twitter account at hellraisercast. Um, let's get chatting about the comics. Yeah, I really want to know what people think about these comics and, and what we said about it and, you know, get some different opinions going because uh, it's really interesting. hmm and we are going to talk about the brand new comics coming out at the moment from Boom Studios as well when they're all out. But we are going to do all of the epic comics, definitely. Yes, definitely. Um, but not every podcast from this point on is going to be about the comics now. No, we're, we're not to... we're just going to do, you know, 10 podcasts about comics from now on. No, we're going to intersperse it with lots of other good yeah. stuff as well, but we will be doing all of them. So yeah. Yeah. So keep listening. Yeah. So saying that, our next podcast is not going to be about the comics at all. The next one's going to be about Clive Barker's other films. We're going to do a podcast about Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions. Mm. Yeah, and while neither of those are specifically about Hellraiser per se, I do think it's very important for us to go back and look at Clive Barker's other films. And Brainwine has only made two other feature films. Because it was his first film that brought the whole thing together, and without that, there would be nothing. So we're going to look at Clive Barker's other directorial films. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be nice to see um, sort of themes and things from Hellraiser represented in other bits of his work as well. Hmm. And we know there's a big fan base, especially for Nightbreed. There's a huge fan community out there for that. So hmm. I mean, there could be a whole Nightbreed podcast, if you wanted, which uh, we're not going to start that up as, a, as an offshoot, but we will talk about it on the next podcast. Right, so we hope you enjoyed our first podcast about the Epic Comics and we will speak to you very soon. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Peter. And we'll see you all shortly. Bye Bye. for now.